You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, and say to him, When you set the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand, as Yahweh commanded Moses. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold. From its base to its flowers, it was hammered work, according to the pattern that Yahweh had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them, and let them go with a razor over all their body, and wash their clothes, and cleanse themselves. Then let them take a bull from the herd, and its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, and you shall take another bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall bring the Levites before the tent of meeting, and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel. When you bring the Levites before Yahweh, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before Yahweh as a wave offering from the people of Israel, that they may do the service of Yahweh. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls, and you shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to Yahweh to make atonement for the Levites." And you shall set the Levites before Aaron and his sons, and shall offer them as a wave offering to Yahweh. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that the Levites shall go in to serve at the tent of meeting, when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering. For they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel." Instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel, I have taken them for myself. For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of man and of beast. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself, and I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons, from among the people of Israel, to do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting, and to make atonement for the people of Israel, that there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary. Thus did Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel to the Levites. According to all that Yahweh commanded Moses concerning the Levites, the people of Israel did to them. And the Levites purified themselves from sin, and washed their clothes, and Aaron offered them as a wave offering before Yahweh. And Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that, the Levites went in to do their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and his sons, as Yahweh had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, This applies to the Levites. From twenty-five years old and upward, they shall come to do duty 
in the service of the tent of meeting, and from the age of fifty years they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. Thus shall you do to the Levites in assigning their duties. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 624 of this podcast. Today is Monday, May 22nd, 2023. That was a reading of Numbers chapter 8 in the Old Testament. Numbers is not exactly the most exciting of titles, but if you really think about it, life is full of numbers. For instance... My son, John, just turned five years old yesterday. That's a number. How many years old are you? You've got to appeal to a number to be able to answer that. Now, if somebody says, what stage of life are you in? I suppose you can, you can get around it. But then even there, we have general parameters for stages of life. So he's a young boy, right? We understand that he's a young boy. Because we know the approximate age range that he's in. You don't have somebody who's 25 being described as a young boy unless there's something really wrong. right? A 25-year-old male, human, we say, is a man. Now, they might be really immature or they might be really mature for their age or they might be about average. But you know how mature they should be approximately based on their age based on that number. And so we've got this Old Testament book of numbers, and then we've got this chapter in particular. We've got numbers within numbers. Actually, interestingly enough, if you'll remember the first episode we did when we very first got into the book of numbers, I talked a little bit about what the commentary is on Logos and how numbers is not what Jews have historically called this book of Moses. They typically might call it something like in the wilderness. So this is the period between slavery in Egypt and receiving the promised land. This is that 40 years of wandering in the desert as God is disciplining his people. He is training his people to serve him. In some sense, this is the maturing of his people. They have been very childish. They've been very immature in their thinking about their relationship towards God, but he is disciplining them as if they were one person. And that can be hard for us to grasp because we're not God. And yet he gives us his word so that we would at least understand that he sees it that way. If it's a little bit too much, it's a little too overwhelming for us to zoom out and think big picture like that, God at least wants us to know that he sees the big picture. <laughs> and that honestly helps to explain a lot of what God's word tells us, Old Testament, New Testament, and what God's word doesn't tell us. There's a lot that we see, speaking personally, and also I know this from talking with family and friends over the years about the Bible, 
there's a lot that we see in the Bible that is just a quick passing reference to something, and you think, wait, 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 wait. Before you move on, what? Tell me more. I, I want to know more about this thing that you just mentioned briefly. But of course, that's not how it works. We can ask God, and we can search it out, and we can ponder, and we can consult commentaries, and see what others have figured out. But Paul writes in the New Testament, we know in part, we prophesy in part. We will know fully, even as we are fully known. But I think that that is talking about the second coming of Christ. I think that's talking about the new heavens and the new earth and our new resurrected bodies. I don't think that's talking about the closing of the canon. I think that what Paul is getting at is when he says that we see through a glass dimly, he really means we are not going to have all the answers, but we have enough answers. This actually came up on Friday night with our biblical training group. We were talking about the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts and how many of these spiritual gifts are for today, how many of them have ceased already because of the close of the biblical canon, because of the end of the apostolic age, although I pointed out in that discussion, and I'll point it out to you as well, John Calvin allegedly, reportedly, posited, what if there were still apostles? And we just don't know to call them that. The apostle is a office, is a position or a title or a role in the New Testament that we're given a category for, alongside overseers and deacons, you also have apostles. And John Calvin, see also Calvinism, (laughs) see also institutes of the Christian religion, see also the Reformed Protestant tradition. John Calvin speculated that without reopening the canon, we could perhaps possibly still have apostles, and we just don't know to call them that. That's a possibility. And actually, for the sake of argument, let me just ask the dangerous question. Do we not regard some men as something else, something more than just being pastors throughout church history? Don't we regard some Christian leaders as more than just a regular overseer, if I can even say that? It's not to denigrate overseers, pastors over local flocks, but it is to say You have some characters who do seem to have a special anointing, a special calling from God to play a more outsized role, not just geographically in their own time, but also for the church more broadly after their lifespan, even on up to the present. And what do we do with such men and their writings and their legacy? Well, I would say we check everything that they wrote, everything that they influenced against scripture, just like the Bereans did with Paul and Barnabas when they were preaching the gospel. I say we do the same thing, and it would be good regardless of whether they belong in a category which would share their title with the apostle Paul or Peter, for instance, or John, for instance. We should be aware that the apostle Paul wrote other things in his lifetime that are not canonical. (laughs) They are not scripture. Not everything he wrote was scripture. If he jotted down, for instance, an order for a sandwich, I'm just making an absurd example here, but bear with me. If he jotted down an order for a sandwich, because 
Barnabas was going to run over to the local equivalent of uh, a subway, maybe a <clears throat> a hero uh, vendor in the local bazaar. And he's like, hey, Paul, do you want anything? I'm going to go grab some lunch. Do you, do you want anything? If Paul grabbed the equivalent of a post-it note and he's like, yeah, you know, here, here's what I'll have. I'll have a 12-inch steak and peppers and spinach greens and honey mustard and hold the <laughs> onions or whatever. Hypothetically, if Paul wrote something like that, it's not included in the canon. And if he ever wrote or said something that was out of line and it's not included in the scriptures, but we were to find it, you wouldn't say, ah, well, he's clearly not. He, he clearly wasn't an apostle because he wrote this thing and this is nonsense. We wouldn't do that. Peter, for instance, is recorded in the New Testament as having stuck his foot in his mouth, both during Jesus' public ministry prior to crucifixion and subsequent the ascension of Christ after the resurrection. Peter gets into trouble in Antioch, for instance, because he's trying to appease the Judaizers. Paul writes about it in Galatians, in his letter to the church in Galatia. He writes about having to rebuke even Peter publicly to his face. And we don't say, oh, well, then nothing that Peter wrote was inspired by the Holy Spirit. None of that is scripture. We don't do that. We don't do that. Well, so also, I would say, if a John Calvin or a Martin Luther or a Thomas Aquinas or an Augustine of Hippo wrote some things that were extraordinarily influential, but then they also wrote some things where you're like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if that's correct. I don't think that's correct. It's conceivable, and it was conceivable in the mind of John Calvin, that perhaps possibly there's a category that those men belong in nevertheless, and that that's a calling from God. We can call it whatever we want to call it. You don't have to call it anything, actually, for that matter. But it might be helpful for us to understand that God has a special calling on some people's lives that transcends serving in only a local church, pastoring a local flock. And this is true, and we know that this is true because there are Christians who are not overseers or deacons, and we might say, well, they're lay people. And I say, but they're still also God's people if they're in Christ. And God has also given them spiritual gifts. Some food for thought, right? It's at least some food for thought as we're considering the cleansing of the Levites and recognizing that God wasn't saying that just because the Levites were especially his, therefore the rest of the tribes of Israel were not his people. No, no, that's not what he means. But there is something about the Levites where God is saying, I want even within this people that is my people, the whole nation of Israel, I want it to be clear that the Levites in particular are especially mine. And then even within the Levites, you have Aaron and his sons set apart for special distinction and so God wants representation within representation within representation, and there's a certain multi-layered, three-dimensional quality to it. But I want to talk here, actually, in relation to the Numbers 8 reading at the top of the episode, Joe Biden. I want to talk about Joe Biden. He's not in Numbers chapter 8, but... What is in Numbers chapter 8 is this little selection 
from verses 25 to 26, and I'll read it again to refresh your memory. From the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. Thus shall you do to the Levites in assigning their duties. Now, I bring this up because we seem to have a setting aside or a kind of retirement, but not really. It's an act of retirement for those who are older than 50. So from the age of 20 to 50, they are to serve in the other roles, the other capacities. But from 50 and up, they're not supposed to serve like they were before. They're supposed to be in something like retirement. But their retirement is their standing guard. And this actually relates to something else that we have talked about on this podcast in recent episodes, namely the gerontocracy. And actually, a fair amount this year, ever since I read Generations by Neil Howe and William Strauss, I've been thinking and talking about the baby boomer generation and how we have a lot of them still in political power well past what was typical in previous generations, generations prior to the baby boomer generation. It was not so common to have people of advanced age serving in the Senate or in the House of Representatives. Now, Michael Knowles points out in a recent Facebook post that Senate, our word for Senate actually comes from a Latin word, senex, which was literally those who are older men. So the elderly men, perhaps older men, old men. So the Senate should be old men. And that is to say, I would highlight that it is old men. The Senate should not be old women. It should be old men. I am a firm believer in that. But the presidency as well has a lower age limit of 35 years old. You have to be at least 35 to run for president. You can't you can't just be really charming, charismatic, intelligent, popular, well-liked, well-spoken, and run for president at 25, 30, even 34. The cap is 35 and up. But increasingly, with Joe Biden as president and not seeming to have all of his wits about him as he speaks, as he acts— Increasingly, the question is, should there be an upper limit for age? And I commented on the Michael Knowles question in which he was explaining senex as being this Latin word. I commented, I don't know about an upper age cap, but I would be in favor of some kind of a mental and physical aptitude requirement. We have that for military service. Why wouldn't we have that for other public servants? Why wouldn't we have that for a precondition to serve in the House of Representatives or in the Senate or as governor or as mayor or as the president of the United States. Otherwise, who you're electing is not who is actually making the decisions. If they are not mentally fit, who is actually running behind the scenes could be anybody. And that's a concerning thought. They're not duly elected. The person handling Joe Biden is not who we voted for, presumably. 
the person writing his scripts and giving him his agenda for the day and telling him, come over here and now go over there and now stand here and now sit there. Now say this, now do that. That person is actually functionally, or those people are actually functionally the president of the United States of America. And who are they? What is their character? What are their qualifications? Is that what we voted for? Well, a great many of us had no idea, but the media said, here's this guy. You recognize his name. He's been in the Senate for a long time. He was vice president of Barack Obama. He's not Donald Trump. Vote for him. Newsweek has a story written by Khaleda Rahman, Joe Biden's G7 appearance littered with gaffes. Rahman writes, footage of President Joe Biden's gaffes during the Group of Seven meeting is being shared on social media. The president arrived in Japan on Thursday to attend the meeting of the world's most powerful democracies and scrapped plans to travel to Papua New Guinea and Australia so that he can get back to Washington, D.C. for debt limit talks. Conservatives have regularly mocked gaffes made by 80-year-old Biden, who has recently announced his intention to run for re-election in 2024. His age, health, and mental fitness for office are likely to be raised by Republicans during the campaign. Early Sunday, the Republican National Committee RNC research account shared a clip of Biden stumbling over his words as he discussed the debt ceiling during a press conference at the summit in Hiroshima. I'll go ahead and play this clip for you. This is cut one. And... You be the judge. You determine what's going on here. And is this the result of advanced age? Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. And there's a lot of other, for example, the idea that we're uh, in terms of uh, taxes that they refuse to. For example, we uh, I was able to balance the budget and pass everything from the, the global warming bill. Anyway, I was able to cut by one point seven billion dollars in the first two years the deficit that we uh, were were accumulating and uh, because I was able to say to it that the 55 corporations in America that made 40 400 billion dollars or 40 billion dollars 400 billion dollars that uh, they uh, they pay zero in tax zero I don't know quite what to make of what he just said personally if you understood that, if that was clear, cogent, and correct, by all means, fill me in. But I'm going to need a translator. And I speak English. I speak American. (laughs) I don't know what he's saying. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't think he knows what he's saying. I don't think he knows what he's talking about. And this is extraordinarily dangerous. It's not just embarrassing. It's not just that he is a Democrat and I am an independent who votes Republican, and I consider myself very much conservative. It's not just that. Even if he were a Republican, I would say, this is not good. This thing that we are doing as a people, as a nation, is not good. It's like we're not even trying. It's like we don't even care. This is not putting our best foot forward. And actually, more to the point, I think this is extraordinarily selfish of Joe Biden, and it's extraordinarily selfish of the Democrats to put Joe Biden to the fore when he's clearly not in good enough shape to be doing the job that he's being asked to do. I mean, think about this with me for a moment, that God could have lots of reasons for saying that those Levites who are older than 50 are no longer going to serve in the typical ways that they would. He could have lots of reasons for that. But among the reasons, 
for 50 being the cutoff, where now we're going to have them stand guard, among the reasons could be mental acuity and physical fitness to do the job. What is the energy level and how sharp are they? How clear-headed are they? And 50, let's just let that sink in. (laughs) 50 years old is 30 years younger than Joe Biden. At what point would he plan to retire? I realize modern medicine, modern healthcare has come a long ways. And so those who are older can receive life-saving treatment and we can put them on medications to help regulate certain processes that start to go awry, certain failures in our body systems due to advanced age can be mitigated. Scientists are working on reversing aging, finding the genes to toggle, manipulating those genes. I understand that there's the genealogies in the Old Testament where we see men living for hundreds of years, not just for decades, but for hundreds of years. But at a certain point, nevertheless, you have to look at, is there a fitness for the job we're asking this person to do or that this person is asking to be able to do. Now, on the flip side, you could say, well, we want to be very respectful. He is the president of the United States of America for one thing, for another thing. The older he is, the more we would have something of a responsibility to treat him with respect just by virtue of his being older. For instance, Leviticus 19.32, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man and you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. Now you could say, Garrett, we need to be careful. We need to be respectful. He's an older man. Also, he is a governing authority. Both and, either or, but both and together mean we need to be respectful. And I say, yes, you're right. Absolutely. You're correct. That's true. But fearing God is not just a reason to honor someone who is older, who is in a position of authority. Fearing God is also something of a limit or a check and a balance on how you honor this person who is older. Just because somebody is much, much older, that doesn't mean at a certain point you don't say, respectfully, sir, no, we shouldn't do that. For instance, consider 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. Paul writes to younger Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So you don't rebuke an older man, but what do you do? If he's mistaken, if he's wrong, you gently correct as a kind of encouragement. Like we will often see those who are instinctually good at this. Hey, let's come over here, sir. And there are a number of reasons to do this. One, because it's right. Two, because the older people get, the crankier they get. The less energy they feel, the easier it is for them to feel irritated at changes or upsets or disrespect. And so you see encouragement. Now, I would say we should take a cue from Calvin Coolidge, who said something like, (laughs) I would prefer not to with regards to running for president. Again, running for re-election. He served one term as president. And then he showed restraint and even in his answer to reporters as to whether he was going to run for re-election. I do not choose to run, is what he said. 
And so maybe what we do with an older man is we say, we would encourage you to not be president again. And then if we have good judgment, we say, I'm not going to vote for him. And that's not disrespectful to say, I am not going to vote for him because I do not believe he can do this job well, as well as we need him to be able to do it. And this is before you even get into concerns about criminal activity, concerns about unethical behavior, concerns about what is being promoted in Joe Biden's name in the way of immorality and ungodliness and lawlessness. All of that needs to still be on the table for being investigated, vetted, and there needs to be accountability. His being of advanced age is not something to hide behind. But in Leviticus, stand up before the gray head, honor the face of an old man, and fear your God. That's God speaking. He ends the statement with, I am Yahweh. What does a God-fearing response to a leadership in Congress, in the White House, that is of advanced age and no longer fit to do the job? What is a God-fearing perspective and response, particularly when they start being used to put forward radical left agenda action items? This is something to consider. And lest we suppose that older men would not be providing a service to society if they were put on guard duty, something like what we read in Numbers chapter 8. I'm going to play cut two for you of how not to relate to an older man or anybody for that matter. But this also, I think, highlights the valuable role that older men in society being guardians of a kind can play and can serve. I'll warn you, there's a little bit of language in this clip, but nevertheless, here's cut two. Take a listen. Come on, man. You're burning your car down, bro. Fuck your car, man. Over. All of this. Yeah. Uh-huh. Why do you want to do it? Come on, man. Come on, man. It better be water, partner, or you're one dead son of a bitch. You stay out of this. I don't want to do that. You almost died, you stupid son of a bitch. Okay, so <laughs> what happened there? Thanks to DC Drano for tweeting out the video here. Annie Oakley over at Not the Bee for embedding that tweet in her post. What was going on was you had a couple of young guys who thought it would be really funny to play this prank, wherein they fill what looks like a portable gas can with water and then film themselves pouring this clear liquid on people's cars, pretending like they're going to light somebody's car on fire. And the first guy, the first guy in the video clip hightails it. It looks like they're in the parking lot for Best Buy or something. He hightails it because the young guy 
isn't getting the reaction. He's not getting the rise that he wanted to out of pretending like he's going to light this guy's car on fire. And so the young guy with the gas can starts chasing the man across the parking lot. Like he's going to pour the gas all over him and light him on fire. And then what happens next is a different cut, a different person that they're trying to prank. Who's got this big, shiny, new, newish, late model Ford. Looks like an F-250, maybe an F-350. But it's an older man. And it looks as though the older man has a cap on with something to do with being a Vietnam vet, I would guess. From from his age, he's probably a Vietnam vet. And he's getting into his vehicle. And then this young guy runs up and he's going to repeat the stunt. But this old guy is not having it. And he comes around and he's holding a 1911 in his hand. And then all of a sudden, it's very deadly serious. He's like, whoa, it's just water. It's just water, man. I was just, it's just a prank. Just smell it. It's water. Okay. It's water. It had better be water. Don't do this. Do not do this. And the old guy is not messing around. This old guy is not going to put up with it. And again, we shouldn't talk the way that they're talking. I apologize for the language, but this young guy could have died. And suppose it wasn't water. Suppose they mess around and it just gets funnier and funnier. And so they decide, you know, we're going to do it for real. And if you don't have older men in society, be they fathers or other older men saying to the younger men, that's it. That's enough. No, we're not doing that. We are not doing that. Stop it. Then what you get is lawlessness. And so I say, it's not a good idea for us to tell the older men, go and wait to die. We're done with you. We've used you up. We're done with you. No, no. Say to the older men, we're going to put you in a position of honor in society. Have older men guarding schools or public libraries or shopping malls. Have older men guarding public spaces where there is harassment from younger men. Have older men who have served, who are sober-minded, who are self-controlled to Teach the younger men, just like Paul says in the New Testament, have the older men teaching the younger men how to behave themselves well in society. That's a good idea, but that doesn't mean that they have to serve. These older men don't have to serve. They're past their prime. They are. They don't have to serve in the primo spot of president of the United States of America or the CEO of the company. They don't have to be the frontline manager anymore. We should respect them, but we should probably be putting them in a different role that is more in keeping with their stage of life and where they're at. And actually, I think we would be all the better for it if we were doing something like what is described here in Numbers chapter 8. But moving on, an example of how not to talk and treat older men in society and older women in society would be if I were to segue here with this story about how many Tyrannosaurus Rex ever existed by saying, ah, speaking of dinosaurs, I think that would be disrespectful, and so I'm not going to do it. But I will tell you about a story that I found on MSN.com from Science Alert, a story written by David Neald. Scientist figures out how many T-Rex ever existed, and it's terrifying. And he doesn't know for sure, of course, but it's an interesting thought, if he's even close 
Neild writes, The Tyrannosaurus rex is dinosaur royalty, an iconic and instantly identifiable species. And according to a new study, as many as 1.7 billion of these beasts roamed Earth before an unfortunate meeting with an asteroid. I would say a global flood, but let's continue. It takes a lot of number crunching to figure this out. Everything from average lifespan to sexual maturity to the number of T-Rex eggs that survived has to be calculated and factored in to reach an estimate. While 1.7 billion is undoubtedly a large figure, it's some 800 million dinosaurs fewer than the estimate reached by a 2021 study. The latest analysis is based on the most up-to-date information we have on dinosaur growth and reproduction, and it looks to be the more accurate one. Quote, unlike my model, the generation time as well as life expectancies, gross reproduction rates, and reproductive values of individuals calculated from the previous model all strongly contradicted our current understanding of the biology of T-Rex and of other theropods, writes evolutionary ecologist Eva Grebeler from the Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz in Germany. Their values also disagreed with those of large extant reptiles, birds, and mammals. All of these shortcomings of the previous model favor the assessment of individual and population characteristics of T. rex and of other extinct species using my model. Even if this is 800 million fewer than the previous estimate, 1.7 billion T. rex is still a lot. That's a lot of T. rex. Now, keep in mind their assessment of the time span that dinosaurs roamed the earth. This is not that they have found 1.7 billion fossils of distinct animals, distinct creatures. It's that they assume a really long span of time in which T-Rex lived. They say it was an asteroid. I say it was a global flood. Actually, that's another thing that science is increasingly bearing out that that could have happened. There could be actually a global flood because there's a lot of water. There's an ocean of water underneath the earth. And if that water were to come to the surface, hypothetically, like the waters of the deep are described in Genesis, in the account of, as we call it, Noah's flood, well then, they could cover all of the land on earth and drown all of the life on earth and lay down in layers all of these fossils that we find all over the earth. They could. That could happen. In fact, that is what happened. But I bring this up. I bring up this story. One, because I like dinosaurs. Two, because it just goes to show that as large and powerful as the T-Rex was, as iconic, we don't have T-Rex roaming the earth right now. So they were very powerful in their prime. And all of the T-Rexes now are just fossils and they can't hurt you. They can't do anything to you unless a fossil gets dug out of the ground and dropped on you. You're safe. And so also we should think about generations. Generations can be very powerful in their day, in their prime. And yet they pass away. They get old. That was part of God's judgment on sin and the sinfulness of man. And it's also something of a mercy for younger generations that at a certain point he relieves us of bad, corrupt generations because they pass away. Bad, corrupt, evil figures will at a certain point, if they don't die in battle or they're not assassinated or they don't have some terrible accident where a T-Rex excavation is dropped on them, they will get old and they will pass away that way. 
And so in some sense, after a fashion, each successive generation, as the previous ones pass away, has decisions to make, and that is simultaneously a very sobering thought and also a very hopeful thought if previous generations, the ones that are ruling the roost at our formative stage of life or in our young adult years, if they pass on and then the baton is passed to our generation, we need to know what to do with it. But we're going to have a chance. We're going to have an opportunity to correct some errors or some injustices or some evils. There are evils, and you can say, oh, I'm uncomfortable with this talk of injustices and oppression and all that. And I say, don't give the left that. Don't cede that ground. There are evils that we need to repent of, and we know what they are when we look to God's word. That's how you declaw the left. In other news, cocaine dealer who had life sentence commuted by Obama hit with three counts of attempted murder over shooting that left woman brain dead. Paul Saka reports for The Blaze, a Chicago area man who previously had his federal life sentence in prison commuted by former President Barack Obama has been charged with attempted murder. Alton Mills of Evergreen Park in Illinois was arrested in connection to a shooting that happened near the I-57 northbound entrance ramp from 147th Street in Posen, Illinois. Early Sunday morning, three friends left a nightclub and were driving home in a Ford Explorer. While at a traffic light, the Explorer drove around a vehicle driven by Mills after failing to move when the light turned green, according to Assistant State Attorney Catherine Morrissey. Mills allegedly caught up to the Explorer down the highway and then fired shots into the SUV. CWB Chicago reported, quote, a bullet struck a woman sleeping in the Explorer's back seat in the head, Morrissey said. Explorer's front passenger told police that the shooter was an older black man with a salt and pepper beard. She also took a blurry picture of the gunman's license plate and recorded a video in which she read the license plate number out loud. And this is very concerning. This is very serious. But might I just point out his being a drug dealer is something of a difficult question for many who are opposed to the left, we're opposed to the radical left, but by virtue of so many libertarians and classical liberals considering themselves increasingly to be conservatives, it's gotten muddy over on the right side of the political spectrum. Because the Overton window has shifted and the left is pushing so many things that are not classically liberal and are not libertarian by any stretch, you will have a lot of libertarians and classical liberals saying we should decriminalize recreational drug use. And if that were to happen, my big question would be, what would we do with the drug dealers? Would we let all of the drug dealers out of prison? Would we commute all of their sentences? For that matter too, what should we do with somebody like this who fires a gun into a neighboring vehicle because he was having some road rage at their not pulling away from the stoplight quickly enough. He's being charged with three counts of attempted murder. And what I would suggest is we need to go Old Testament in our justice towards murderers. For starters, not just, but for starters, that's how you fix that problem. 
Don't give me some sob story about how they were poor growing up. They didn't get access to a good education. Don't tell me about their skin color, their socioeconomic status. This is very, very simple. Did they do the crime? Well, then they should suffer the consequences. Did they commit murder or were they attempting to commit murder? If so, death. The penalty should be death. If this was an unjust slaying or an attempt at the same, they should be put to death. Don't put them in the prison system for life. Now, if you're going to let other people out for various other things, I applaud the notion of reforming criminal justice and how we punish other types of crime. I do. I don't agree with locking people away for theft, for instance. I say they should be made to repay what they stole and then some. Add a fifth over and above what you stole from somebody and repay. That would be much better. And if it escalates from there and they commit some capital offense, well then just, I suppose, do put them to death. And then their belongings, their effects can be auctioned off and the proceeds can go to those that they harmed or the families of those that they harmed. That would be more restorative. That would be more corrective, I think, than just putting people in storage where they get three square meals a day They get educational materials, they can read books, they can watch TV, they can work out, they can play basketball, they can be provided for. Because some people commit crimes in this country so that they can go to prison. Because that's better than living on the street where they don't have meals provided, they don't have shelter. Some people intentionally commit crimes so they can go to prison. Because prison would be better than their life outside of those prison walls. And so the whole business needs to be rethought reconsidered, reevaluated. I don't believe that this guy acting this way towards somebody or several somebodies, leaving a woman brain dead, I don't believe that this should be just, oh, we put you back in prison. No, this guy should be put to death for what he did. He left this woman brain dead. He should be put to death. It's as simple as that. But here's another story. From The Blaze, Candace Hathaway reports May 19th, the FBI will crush you. This government will crush you and your family. Whistleblower's chilling testimony warns about costs of exposing government corruption. I'll play this clip for you as well. Here's cut three. FBI whistleblower Garrett O'Boyle. Take a listen. All of the hardships you've gone through. If one of your really good friends, your former colleagues, came to you and said, I have this thing that is being covered up, and I think the American people need to know about it, what advice would you give them? I would tell them first to pray about it long and hard. And I would tell them I could take it to Congress for them, or I could put them in touch with Congress, but I would advise them not to do it. So you would legitimately try to protect one of your colleagues from doing what you have done? Absolutely. And how do you think that solves being able to shine light on corruption, weaponization, any kind of misconduct that exists with the American people? It doesn't solve it. But the FBI will crush you. This government will crush you and your family if you try to expose the truth about things that they are doing that are wrong. And we are all examples of that. I can't think of a more sobering way to end a hearing. I yield back. This, ladies and gentlemen, is all the more reason why we need to not have a gerontocracy. 
We need to not have people who are well past their prime, who lack energy, both physical energy and mental energy, filling up our Senate and our House of Representatives and also occupying the White House. All of the above need to have men, men who are courageous and brave and bold and who hate bribes and who fear God, all of the above, in order to provide accountability that is much needed and long overdue, we need to have men in positions of authority. That American law enforcement, the Department of Justice, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, would be largely unaccountable and would guarantee that it is not held accountable by just going after anybody internally who would blow the whistle on abuses of power, overreach, criminality within the FBI itself, corruption, is unacceptable. And I blame the Democrats and I blame establishment Republicans for caring more about their own selfish ambition, their own vain conceit, their own greed for unjust gain than they do about the sacred trust that has been put in them. A sacred trust and a sacred oath that they swore to serve the American people is violated. And that violation of the sacred trust that was put in them, that was placed in them, has to be rooted out and expunged from our government. Romans 13, Paul writes that we should submit ourselves to the governing authorities, but he also says that the governing authority is a minister of God. All authority comes from God, but remember what I read for you at the top. You shall fear your God. I am Yahweh, Leviticus 19.32. It's not either or. It's not either you honor those who are in positions of governing authority or you honor God, you fear God. You fear God, and that affects the way both that you obey and also when it is necessary to disobey or to refuse to obey an unlawful order or a wicked, corrupt order. Fearing God affects whether you actually make the decision to say, no, I can't do that. I cannot do that. That would dishonor the Lord my God. I can't do it. Also, too, remember we talked several episodes ago about how it is a sin to not testify. When there is a call to testify and to bring relevant testimony, witness testimony, to a court case, God says it's a sin to not. If you have information and you're a witness to a crime and there's a call for testimony, for instance, from congressional oversight committees, hey, we need to know what's going on. Come forward. I'm sorry that your family is being threatened. I'm sorry that there are wicked, corrupt men who just like they were willing to do corrupt things that you would be notifying Congress of, they're willing to do even more corrupt things to you and your family to serve as a warning to everybody else. It looks like it's working. If this guy would honestly say, I would encourage my friends to not come forward as whistleblowers because the government will destroy you. I say the FBI is not supposed to be our government. If it is an agent, it is not the be-all, end-all. And for that matter, if the government agents themselves are breaking the very oaths that they swore, and if they are 
breaking the very laws which they are supposed to uphold. And if others in government are saying, we need to know about this, we need to be able to clean this up. We can't clean it up if we don't know about it. We need you to come forward. Well, that is your government too. So the question here is, are we going to fulfill our oaths to serve and protect, to uphold the Constitution, for instance? Are we going to fulfill those oaths to serve the American people, to be one nation under God? Are we going to fear God and honor God by doing justice? I say, so long as we have people who are propped up as figureheads, but they actually are not there, we put ourselves at an extraordinarily high risk of corruption. And we're seeing that. Don't necessarily trust what your eyes are seeing these days in other news. The Telegraph published a story written by Brioni Gordon. Is this really what perfect looks like? Gordon writes, Another day, another sign that we have fallen down the rabbit hole when it comes to all things artificial intelligence. Last week, the creator of ChatGPT stood in front of U.S. senators and warned them that AI could cause significant harm to the world, calling for greater regulation of the very technology he helped to create. Sam Altman said, quote, My worst fear is that if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong, end quote. In a world where it is increasingly hard to know what is real and what is a chatbot, You've got to admire Altman's honesty to understand the significance of his testimony. We should perhaps view it as the near equivalent of a 1950s Marlboro man tearing up his ad script and screaming to the camera at the top of his not yet diseased lungs, quote, that delicious fag you are smoking will end up killing you one day, end quote. Let's think soberly about where this goes. Now, this article highlights that the Bulimia Project recently asked AI to present the ideal human. What is the ideal human, male and female? Quoting Gordon, the ideal human has big hair, big boobs, big muscles, perfect teeth, and olive skin. The women are mostly blonde, the men mostly dark and handsome. They are pouty and curvy in all the right places. Nothing sags other than your heart as you realize this is what our children are aspiring to look like right now. Computer-generated animations about as human as Mr. Potato Head, explaining the findings the Bulimia Project said, quote, we can only assume that the reason AI came up with so many oddly shaped versions of the physique it found on social media is that these platforms promote unrealistic body types to begin with. Now, let me give a little bit of caution, a little bit of cautionary pushback here. To have an ideal and to say the ideal is something of an aggregate, that is not itself dangerous. In fact, As Christians, we would say, spiritually, we're called to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. In the Old Testament, God tells his people, Israel, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that is a standard of absolute ideal perfection, not refrained from just because you might feel like you don't measure up. Well, you don't. You don't measure up. But if you don't have an ideal, if you don't have a standard to shoot for, well, then Is there not a harm in that as well? Of course there is. Of course there is. What's dangerous is when we say your physical self is all that there is, or that's the most important part of you is your physical self. If you're not sexy, you're worthless. I don't care about you. If you're not physically attractive, then you're never going to amount to anything. That's what's dangerous and toxic in all this. Not saying 
yeah, ideally, these are the proportions or this is what peak maturity, prime of life, health, and attractiveness looks like. What's gone terribly wrong is that based on whether we perceive somebody is the fittest, we therefore decide whether we're going to support them or be compassionate on them or patient with them because of evolutionary thinking having crept into our way of relating on every issue, on every subject. Unfortunately, a lot of the mindset of eugenics is still with us. And so people who are deemed ugly, grotesque, unfit, are very often treated like human garbage, talked to, if they're talked to at all, talked to like they're human garbage. And the attitude would seem to be the sooner they are out of the picture, the better, whatever that looks like, whatever that requires. Let's not waste our precious time, attention, and resources on them. We want the best, the best in breed. That's what's really dangerous here, not having an ideal. I wonder to myself sometimes what the best way to argue against concerns about unrealistic uh, body image, what's the best way to argue against that? And I'll let you know when I figure it out. (laughs) But my concern with AI is not first and foremost that ever more idealized and realistic portrayals of an unrealistic body image are going to be put in front of young boys and young girls. But rather, regardless of whether AI is doing that, we would hold on to this idea that your physical self is who you are, first and foremost and chiefly, and that's all there is. That's all we care about is your physical self. There's a variation on the idea behind the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And we could say there's a connection here. Sin in the world has broken us down generationally, but we need to remember that there's a immaterial part of us as well that endures. And also we need to remember that all of us have a sinful nature. All of us need Jesus. All of us who are in Jesus are going to have a resurrected body that is going to be perfect. And we're going to have a will that is capable of doing only good when very often we're struggling to do what is right that we know to do and to not do what is evil that we know not to do. We're going to have a will that is capable of batting a thousand. And that won't mean that we're infinite, but it'll mean that our finite efforts will perfectly reflect the goodness of God in all of the myriad ways it pleases God for us to be gifted. I don't think that we will all, (laughs) I don't think we'll all look like we think we'll look like. And I don't think that we'll all be equally talented or good at this, that, and the other thing. But I think insofar as God has given us particular talents, and we'll still be finite creatures, we will express those talents, we will invest those talents, we will make use of the abilities that God has given us perfectly and with perfect satisfaction and happiness and harmony. In the meantime, we should not suppose that man is infinitely perfectible or that we can perfect one another. This is where the wisdom of advice from the likes of McRaven or Peterson to start your day by making your bed, something simple before you criticize the world, start by cleaning your own room. 
this is where advice like that becomes very important to internalize. This is where Jesus is talking about removing the plank from your own eye before you try to help your brother with a speck in his eye finds an application, maybe an application we didn't expect or we weren't looking for or we wouldn't have anticipated or which we would not call traditional is nevertheless needed when we realize like the author of the piece from the telegraph concludes social media big tech is addictive and generative ai promises to make it only all the more addictive but you've got to put that together with persuasive design the palo alto laboratory that is focused on putting psychologists together with computer scientists to make ever more compelling, rewarding, and manipulative technologies, hardware, software, the goal is the same, to engineer your behavior, to re-engineer your thinking, your neural pathways. Are we a slave to these things or are we more free to love God and one another as a result of having them in our lives. That's important. That's an important thing to know and to figure out. It's good, generally speaking, to have an ideal or to have a vision of the good life, you might say. And for to have a physical body in that vision of the good life, to have an ideal of what would it look like for me to be healthy and fit and energetic and strong and fast and to have endurance, not just to do work, but to enjoy life, to be a part of my kids' lives, to be a part of my grandkids' lives someday. It's good to have a vision of the good life that involves, includes physical health. And yes, I think that physical beauty is different for men and women, and that's okay. It's okay for there to be ideals and norms that deviate from the average. It's okay for there to be above average, beautiful people, handsome people. It's okay for somebody to be faster than most everybody else, stronger than most everybody else, more flexible than most everybody else, more agile than most everybody else, to have more endurance than most everybody else. That's okay. But we don't then say, if I don't match up to this other person in a certain category, I'm worthless. No, no, no. Paul would tell us, if I don't have love, then what I'm doing is worthless or meaningless. If I don't have love driving it, that's when it loses its purpose. Solomon in the Old Testament would also say, vanity of vanities in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, a chasing after the wind. The same event happens to the poor man and the rich man, the wise man and the fool, the righteous man and the wicked man, the same event happens to them all. Death. It's appointed once for a man to die. Then comes the judgment. But here's where you have to read Ecclesiastes to the very end. And this is good to keep in mind with computers and all kinds of technology, including generative AI. This is meaningless. This is purposeless if it doesn't have love. If it doesn't help us to love one another better, and to love God with all our being, all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, then what is it for? What's it good for? These are questions we need to grapple with if we're going to be 
free instead of enslaved, or deceived. Speaking of deceived, Courtney Wheel reports for TheBlaze.com, Man who won women's cycling race stands alone on podium after female competitors refuse to join him. Hmm. A man, Wheel writes, who won his age division in a recent women's cycling race accepted his award alone after the women who finished in second and third place refused to join him on the winner's podium. On Sunday, 46-year-old Wesley Mumford, who in 2017 began undergoing medical treatments to appear as female and who now goes by the name Leslie Mumford, trounced the competition in the 40-49 to age bracket of the women's desert gravel CO2 UT, a grueling 100-mile gravel race along the desert mountains of Colorado near the Utah border. In fact, based on the final results, it could hardly be considered a competition. The second-place finisher, Lindsey Crete, crossed the finish line a full 17 minutes after Mumford, and third-place winner, Michelle Van Sickle, lost to Mumford by more than half an hour. Even after Mumford humiliated the women both physically and emotionally, he seemed nonplussed that Crete and Van Sickle declined to join him on the winner's podium. Now, what was I just saying about not being deceived? This guy is a man who is deceived. And his winning this race, a women's race, proves a few things. One, that there's a difference between men and women. Two, that Increasingly, the women are just not interested in keeping up this charade. Increasingly, the women are disgusted. I think this also highlights how without love, what's it worth? I mean, really, the question should be asked, who is this man loving well by competing against women and winning this race? Who is he loving? Is he loving those women well? Is he loving his family well? Is he loving broader society well? Is he loving God well? I think you would have to say no on all counts. Who's he loving? Himself. When he decided to be discontented with being a man, living a life as a man, and to transition or to undergo surgery so as to look more and more like a woman, was he loving God well? Was he loving his fellow man well? His family, his friends? his neighbors? Was he loving any of those people well? Or was he only caring about himself? Was he only thinking of himself? We know the answer. Actually, also too, kudos to Courtney Wheel for picking up on the lesson. This is something I objected to in the reporting on Zoe Zephyr, the biological male, the man from Missoula, Montana, who was kicked out of the Montana state legislature for telling Republicans, I hope you see blood on your hands when you look down to pray during the next corporate prayer to open our sessions. The reporting from the blaze, I don't remember who the journalist was that wrote the report, but the reporting from the blaze kept referring to Zoe Zephyr with female pronouns. No, Zoe Zephyr is a man. Stop arguing against yourself. Stop letting the left control the terms of the debate and win the debate. If you use the preferred pronouns, you are lying. You're being complicit in the lie. 
Let's be consistent here. Zoe Zephyr is a man, even if he had himself castrated and had various other surgical procedures performed, and if he's on hormone treatment, if he grows his hair out long, if he puts on women's clothes, that doesn't make him a woman, and you shouldn't refer to this male with women's pronouns. So kudos to Courtney Wheel for learning the lesson here. Maybe others also objected and complained. I would refer you back to Rosario Butterfield's article that I shared with you, where she repented of the sin of using preferred pronouns, because it's a lie. And it actually is a sin against God, and it's a sin against our fellow man to be complicit in that lie. She repented of it. She didn't just say, you know, I think I made a mistake or I've changed my mind. No, no, I sinned and I repent. And I need you all to know because I sinned publicly. I need to repent publicly. Bravo. We need more of that and kudos to Courtney Wheel and Rosaria Butterfield for coming to the realization. There is a difference between men and women. And it's not my opinion. And it's not my preferences. It's not my standard versus your standard. No, it's God's standard. Do we agree with God here? Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right, which is not the same thing as saying we're not on God's side. When Abraham Lincoln said that, I don't believe what he meant was we're not really on God's side. It was we need to take care that we are acting according to God's purposes and his revealed will and his word, because God is always right. That's a remarkable statement from somebody who Dr. Gueltso recently in his podcast interview with Kevin DeYoung said was not a particularly religious man. I think Abraham Lincoln was very much a believer in God. If he had some objections to the way that the church in his day typically carried on or conducted itself, well, that's different. That's not the same thing as disbelieving in the goodness of God or in the truth of his word. That's not the same thing. I have all kinds of concerns about how Christians in America carry on frequently. That's not to say that I'm denying that they're Christians if they ever say something they ought not to or do something that they ought not to. It's not even to say that I'm denying the sincerity of their profession of faith if they are stiff-necked sometimes or bullheaded. God forbid somebody would look back on my podcast years from now and say, yeah, was he really a Christian though? Was he really, if he was really a Christian, he would have joined a church and stayed in that local church for the whole of his life. And he would have never criticized pastors or fellow Christians, the church in America. If he were really a Christian, we have reasons to doubt. He talked an awful lot about what the church was doing wrong. Yeah. You know who else did? The apostle Paul. (laughs) You know who else did? Peter and James and John and Jesus and God himself is constantly correcting his people, leaders and followers alike. But once again, we need to know where to categorize people. It's not for no reason that people in a certain age range compete together, for instance, the 40 to 49-year-old age bracket for women is a separate age bracket. Why? Because as we get older, we have less energy. We are less fast, less strong. Also, interestingly, this age bracket cuts off 
the year before, when God says in Numbers chapter 8, you should say to the older men, you're not going to serve like you did in your 20s or your 30s or even your 40s. Now that you're 50, you're going to stand guard. You can serve in that way. In related news, the Daily Wire reports May 20th, Nebraska Democrat lawmaker explodes during session. We need trans people. I'll go ahead and play the audio for you. You can take a listen. Here is a, can you guess, Republican, Democrat, Democrat, Senator, Michaela Kavanaugh. Cut four. Take a listen. Trans people, we love trans people. Trans people belong here. We need trans people. We love trans people. Trans people belong here. We need trans people. We love trans people. Trans people belong here. We need trans people. We love trans people. Trans people belong here. We need trans people. We love trans people. Trans people belong here. We need trans people. We love trans people. Trans people belong here. We need trans people. We love trans people. Trans people belong. And cut. We actually don't need trans people. Now, when I say that, what I really mean is we don't need for people to be trans. We don't need that. What we need is sanity. This Democrat senator from Nebraska is a great example of why I'm not sold that women's suffrage was such a good idea. I don't think that we're better off as a country because women were given the right to vote. And I am definitely not sold on the idea that women should be in Congress. I don't think that the ideal, again, speaking of ideals, I don't think that the ideal, I believe very strongly that the ideal is not that women are lawmakers or judges or executives. The ideal is that women would be treated with respect and dignity. They would be protected in society. They would be honored. They would be loved by their husbands, provided for and protected by their fathers and their brothers, that we would demand that they are treated with dignity and that they would be protected by the laws. But you don't need for men to identify as women. And you don't need for women to identify as men. In fact, to the contrary, this is not a human's right to do this thing because our rights ultimately come from God. God never gave us this right. In fact, he says in his word that this is wrong. Nature itself would teach us that, that this is wrong. A wrong can't be a right. Now, you might be free to, you might have the choice to, you might have the option to do a certain thing. That's not the same thing as it being a right. I might be free to do any number of foolish, destructive, damaging things. One, I'm not free from the consequences of doing those things. If I am foolish, well, then I'm going to suffer for it. If I'm wise, then I'm going to get a benefit from it. I can use my freedom to be wise or foolish. I can use my freedom to do what is good or to do what is evil. I can use my freedom to say things that are true or say things that are false. That doesn't mean that reality then must conform to me, to where the responsibility of everybody else is to protect me from the consequences of my actions, 
my statements. Trans people are just people. They're not better people. In fact, I think you could argue there are a lot of reasons why trans people are very damaged. And insofar as the idea right now is to promote the trans, not just to normalize them, but to say that they are better, to say that a trans person is better than somebody who is not trans. A man who identifies as a woman is not just being normalized as if he's like any other woman. He's being put on magazine covers. He's the best woman ever. AI generating some body image ideal that's unrealistic in some people's minds for men or for women, that's concerning. I'm more concerned about men saying I'm a woman and not just, are you going to celebrate me as a woman? You're going to say I'm the best woman ever or else, or else you'll regret it. Give me what I want or else you're my enemy. What we need here is a restoration of sanity and good judgment and righteousness. Our laws should reflect that. Our norms should reflect that. Our speech patterns should reflect that. Our relationships should reflect that. And it actually is the most loving thing we could possibly do to say, no, no, we don't need trans people. We need people who think that they are some other gender to stop it. Enough already. We need people who are promoting this idea to little kids to stop it. We need to love those little kids enough to protect them. We need to love their parents enough to protect their right to tell teachers and activists, no, no means no. This is a question of love or selfishness, but the selfish folks are the ones who are demanding. You give us political power. You stay out of our way. You tell us what we want to hear. You use the words that we tell you to say, you keep silent when we tell you to shut up or we'll destroy you. That's selfish. That's evil. That's corrupt. That's not spiritual wisdom that's from above. That's demonic. Let's talk about an article that was sent to me in the American Reformer. A response to R. Scott Clark titled Extraordinary Evils, Extraordinary Remedies, written by Timon Klein. I hope I'm saying your name correctly, sir. April 26th, 2023, R. Scott Clark, prolific blogger at Heidel Blog and professor at Westminster, California, recently addressed a new overture from the Evangelical Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, to the General Assembly, GA, of the same denomination. The overture implores the GA to petition the federal and state governments to, quote, renounce the sin of all medical and surgical sex change procedures in minors by the American healthcare system because they result in irreversible harm, end quote. To be clear, Clark considers transgenderism and all its sociopolitical baggage to be a moral crisis. His position cannot be equated with the lackadaisical, limp-wristed account provided by other evangelical, quote, thought leaders, end quote. I do not mean to disparage Clark's character, he is not liberal or progressive in this way, though he is a civil libertarian. He is not capitulating directly on the moral challenge at hand. The disagreement explored below has to do with the relationship between the church and state within the bounds of the Westminster Confession and Reformed Orthodoxy, plain and simple. Nevertheless, Clark questions, indeed objects to, the overture on the grounds that it violates Westminster Confession of Faith 31.4. 
Now, Clark shows his hand. The version of the confession that he cites is not the original 1647. He appeals to the later 18th century revisions, wherein 31.2 was eliminated. He makes no note of this in his post. The original Article 31 included a provision empowering the magistrate to call synods, thereby severing the proper relation between the civil and ecclesial powers. Clark's version omits that prerogative. Recall, too, that Dr. Clark's own Belgic confession underwent similar later revisions to much the same effect. In any case, Clark invokes 31.4. The original 31.4 would not apply as it stands to smack down the Evangel Presbytery's overture. It is an example of the church, the ecclesial power overstepping into civil affairs, with which it is not to intermeddle except in cases extraordinary. Or the church may request advisory opinions of sorts to satisfy its conscience. For Clark, the entire inquiry centers on the definition of quote, cases extraordinary, end quote, or, quote, highly unusual, end quote. By his lights, the onslaught of transgenderism does not yet qualify as such a case. Currently, it is a commonwealth or civil matter over which the church exercises no jurisdiction and possesses no right of comment or appeal to submit the overture in question then would constitute a violation of the confession because the, quote, interests of the church are not immediately concerned, end quote. For support, Clark Marshall's A.A. Hodge's commentary on the confession, an indispensable resource to be sure. Hodge, however, is not a commentator at all proximate to the Westminster Assembly itself. It is curious that Clark does not explicitly rope in any 17th century sources he summarily claims are on his side, but rather settles for a 19th century expositor. Of course, said expositor is working with the same later edition that Clark favors. And let me just stop right there. Let me just stop. Let me, let me, Pump the brakes, pause, time out, <laughs> flag on the play. I mean no disrespect to either party, Clark or Klein, but this is not the way. <laughs> this, this is not the way to gain traction. It's my way of thinking. When it says at the very close of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 to 29, that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Something like this kind of a back and forth between Clark and Klein is what the crowds were used to. Again, I'm not trying to be rude, but this is not the way to effect meaningful change or meaningful reform in either the church or in the civil government. I understand that there is an academic debate being had here, and I understand that there's a place for that, but the academic debate is not going to win the day. Also, might I just point out, the absolute authority here rests in God's word, not in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Having a lengthy debate about the Westminster Confession of Faith, its legacy, what was intended, what the effects have been, what the effects of veering away from it would be for Presbyterians who adhere to it. All of that's worthwhile, don't get me wrong, but a certain frustration is felt by me, and I think many American Christians, 
when that kind of a debate, that kind of an academic debate, valid as it might be, would be a impoverishing influence on the church. Proverbs tells us that in all toil there is a profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Let me make this much simpler so that we can get to work because we have work to do. God himself speaks to men wearing what pertains to women, women wearing what pertains to men, and he says it's an abomination. Paul says that those who practice such things regarding homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Homosexuality, whether you are playing the part of the giver or the receiver of homosexual acts, those who practice such things, those who live in that way, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The sexually immoral, more broadly, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, but homosexuality is mentioned specifically. In some translations, that comes to us effeminate. This is a New Testament issue and not none of the church's business. For that matter, Jesus himself in the New Testament says it would be better for a man to have a millstone tied around his neck. Millstones are heavy things, by the way. A millstone tied around his neck and for him to be cast into the depths of the sea, which is to say he would drown. He wouldn't make it. It's not a punishment of, well, now you're going to have to swim back to shore and that'll teach you. No, we're going to drown you. It would be better for us to drown you in the depths of the sea, take you a mile off the coast and just drop you off, let the water do its thing. That would be better than for you to cause these little ones who believe in Jesus to disbelieve in Jesus, these little ones to sin in a way that would keep them from the kingdom of heaven. As in, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is absolutely a gospel issue. This is absolutely a call believers and non-believers to repentance issue. If the civil magistrate is affirming these things and saying, thou shalt, you will, you must, or will take your kids away, this is also very much a biblical issue, very much within the domain of the church. That children could be taken from their parents If their parents find out that their kids are being indoctrinated with gender theory and being taught to use preferred pronouns and being taught to be homosexuals in the public schools, if the parents would say, ah, not on my watch, and CPS in the state of Washington, for instance, would say, okay, we'll we'll fix that. This child will just not be under your care anymore. Problem solved. I don't need a dusty debate about the Westminster Confession of Faith section, whatever, paragraph, whatever, in the version that was written in the 1600s or the version that was written in the 1700s or the version that this denomination likes or this scholar endorses. I don't need that dusty debate to know that what's happening in the United States of America is of eternal significance for the souls of men, women, and children and that the church needs to call for repentance of behaviors and attitudes, which God says very clearly, God says very clearly in his word, Old Testament and New Testament are abominable. I don't need the flowery academic sparring. You can have it, but the quarreling about words. Remember that when Paul warns Timothy in his second letter in the New Testament to not to? 2 Timothy 2, 14. In the section titled, A Worker Approved by God, A Worker 
a worker. So we need to get to work. In all toil, there is a profit. Toil here, synonym for work. In all toil, there is a profit. In all work, there is a profit. But mere talk tends only to poverty. Remind them of these things, Paul writes, and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And we know that from experience, and we know that on a gut level, quarreling about words does no good. It only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I don't think a dusty academic debate about the Westminster Confession is doing our best in this context. I apologize if I'm being rude, if I'm being presumptuous. I don't mean to be, but I don't think that that is our best. I think what would be our best is to say, from scripture, being Bereans about it, And yes, if you want to enlist the Westminster Confession, by all means, if you want to enlist the history of Presbyterians being very active in reforming government, by all means, go for it. But from scripture, we know that we are called to call others to repentance. We know also what we should repent of in this case. We also know how we must conduct ourselves to be blameless. The church must be holy, for God is holy. We are called to be perfect, for he is perfect. And if you don't measure up, don't despair. Don't grow weary in doing what is good. He gives more grace. But if you're cheapening that grace, and you're saying grace, grace, like the false prophets used to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace, when there is no grace, woe to you. Scrolling down to the conclusion of Klein's article at American Reformer. He says, how quaint, how depressing, from this perspective, the absence of a godly magistrate attending to synodical activity places us in a sort of perpetual extraordinary case. But that does not quite get at what Clark is discussing. Gillespie's comments do, however, recall the range of the use of the terms in question and how far removed we are from their original intellectual home of the Constantinian order, wherein not only can the magistrate call synods, but also participate in them. More importantly, Gillespie's church-state model provides the precedent for the overture in question as a rather conventional plea by the spiritual power to the temporal power on a moral question, not purely civil policy for the latter to fulfill its role according to the bare minimum basis of its own moral authority, vis-a-vis the light and law of nature. Basically, the evangel presbytery is imploring the state to be the state. Is that so odd? You know, You could just lead with that. That very last line is great. That very last sentence. The evangel presbytery is imploring the state to be the state. Is that so odd? A libertarian will say, we shouldn't prohibit anything. Don't forbid anything. And my question would be, well, are you going to forbid all forbidding? Are you going to prohibit all prohibition? Surely not. Because you don't have the authority to do that. God has the authority. And God prohibits certain things, and he gives consequences for other things. And just because we're under grace, that doesn't mean that the civil magistrate doesn't have a responsibility. And if the civil magistrate fails to do its job and is negligent or corrupt, rewarding those who do what is evil and punishing those who do what is good, yes, it absolutely is proper for the ecclesial authorities to call for a proper accounting. Historically, that has been the case since the beginning, since the beginning of church history, and we find it all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Do it with gentleness and respect, absolutely, but do it with boldness. No less for being gracious. No less for being respectful should you be bold and fear God, man. Lastly, for this episode, we're going to talk about a piece by Victor Davis Hanson, published March 16th of this year in American Greatness over at victorhanson.com. He's got a blog titled The Blade of Perseus, which is a cool name. Victor Davis Hanson is one of my favorite historians to read. There's a few titles by him that I haven't quite gotten to yet on Audible, but he writes this piece titled, Are We the Byzantines? Which opens as follows. When Constantinople finally fell to the Ottomans on Tuesday, May 29th, 1453, the Byzantine Empire and its capital had survived for 1,000 years beyond the fall of the Western Empire at Rome. Always outnumbered in a sea of enemies, the Byzantines' survival had depended on its realist diplomacy of dividing its enemies, avoiding military quagmires, and ensuring constant deterrence. Generations of self-sacrifice ensured ample investment for infrastructure. Each generation inherited and improved on singular aqueducts and cisterns, sewer systems, and the most complex and formidable city fortifications in the world. Brilliant scientific advancement and engineering gave the empire advantages like swift galleys and flamethrowers, an ancient precursor to napalm. The law reigned supreme for nearly a millennium after the emperor Justinian codified a prior thousand years of Roman jurisprudence. Yet this millennium-old crown jewel of the ancient world that once was home to 800,000 citizens had only 50,000 inhabitants left when it fell. There were only 7,000 defenders on the walls to hold back a huge Turkish army of over 150,000 attackers. The Islamic winners took over the once magical city of Constantinople and renamed it Istanbul. It had been the home of the renowned Santa Sophia, the largest Christian church in the world for over 900 years. Almost immediately, this church of the holy wisdom was converted into the then largest mosque in the Islamic world with minarets to follow. So what happened to the once indomitable city fortress and its empire? Christendom had cannibalized itself. Western Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy fought endlessly. Westerners often hated each other more than they did their common enemy. In the final days of Constantinople, almost no help was sent from Western Europe to the besieged city. In fact, 250 years earlier, the Western Franks of the Fourth Crusade had detoured from the Holy Land to storm the supposedly allied Christian city of Constantinople. Then they ransacked the city and hijacked the Byzantine Empire for a half-century. Constantinople never quite recovered. The 14th century Black Plague killed tens of thousands of Byzantines and scared thousands more into moving out of the cramped city. But the aging and dying empire battled more than the challenges of internal divisions or an unforeseen but deadly pandemic and the empire's disastrous responses to it. The last generations of Byzantines had inherited a global reputation and standard of living that they themselves no longer earned. They neglected their former civic virtues and fought endless battles over obscure religious texts, doctrines, and vocabulary. They did not expand their anemic army and navy. They did not reunite their scattered Greek-speaking empire. They did not properly maintain their once life-giving walls. Instead of earning money through their accustomed nonstop trade, they inflated their currency, and were forced to melt down the city's inherited gold and silver fixtures. 
And let me just stop right there. Is this sounding familiar? Does this sound like a country you know? Of course, Victor Davis Hanson is trying to warn us, and he closes the piece, which you can read the full of. I'll include a link in the description for this podcast episode. The Byzantines never woke up in time to understand what they had become. So far, neither have Americans. We are the Byzantines. Complicated, with bloated bureaucracies, self-serving, self-indulgent, full of talk, and not willing to work, and not willing to sacrifice. Our end will be the same, unless we have a change of heart. And this goes back to numbers. The big question for those who are much older should be asked very candidly, very respectfully, yes, because they are older, but very candidly, whether they are putting themselves first, whether they are putting themselves ahead of the welfare of their children and their grandchildren to stubbornly cling to power well past their ability to wield that power effectively, responsibly, whether those older generations stubbornly cling to their wealth, trying to prove that they're better than the generation that came before them, the greatest generation, as it's called, whether they are better than every generation that follows after them. Rig the game and then complain about your children and your grandchildren. Is that love or is that selfishness? Those younger generations, if they grow up scrapping, scheming, resenting the older generations that pass down this mess but have not passed down the resources with which to tackle the mess and yet nevertheless follow in the footsteps of those former generations and carry on their bad habits, we cannot maintain this country. We can't maintain our institutions or our organizations our homes, our churches, our businesses, or our government, civil. If we want to bicker about obscure texts and quarrel about words and play gotcha or turn a blind eye when corruption comes from certain quarters or greedily hoard our wealth instead of using it in God's service, to love God well, to love one another well, then our end will be the same as the Byzantines. That's the point. That's the big idea in Numbers chapter 8. From the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. They can minister by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. So at a certain point, the younger men presumably have to tell the older men, you're 50. And that reminder is respectfully stated, but the encouragement is, Because we fear God, we're going to obey God here. And it's time for you to step down or for you to step aside. Men who are in the prime of life need to step up and move into these positions of service. This is true in the civil sphere. This is true in the church as well. This is true in families. And we know this. I know this from my own experience on my father's side. My grandparents have both passed now, but before they passed, there came a time when they weren't able to take care of themselves anymore, much less be making decisions that impacted the whole family. At a certain point, physically, driving around town just wasn't safe and it wasn't a good option. Even just to drive themselves to the store 
wouldn't be safe. It wouldn't be responsible for their sake or for the sake of others who are out on the roads. And so they had to be told very respectfully, very gently by their children, mom, dad, can I drive you? I don't think it would be a good idea for you to drive yourself. Can I drive you? I'll take you or I'll go for you or I'll send my son or my daughter. They'll take care of that errand for you. Can I get you anything? Not in a way to tear them down or humiliate them or tell them that they're worthless, but as a way of honoring them and also being responsible towards everyone else in the scenario. They had to be told at a certain point, let me do that for you. Let me do that for my children, for my grandchildren. At a certain point, my grandfather's mind was not remembering faces and names and details of conversations. And so he had to have decisions being made for him by my dad's generation. And it wasn't to say that he was worthless or he wasn't serving some kind of a role in the family. No, 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 no. But if he had declared that he was going to run for president, I guarantee you, my aunts and my uncles and my cousins and I would have said, hey, uh, dad, grandpa, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that would work out so good. So why are the rules different when it comes to senators, congressmen, and the president of the United States of America? The rules shouldn't be different. What should be happening is the baton is passed to those who are younger. They are trained and equipped, and the older generation is still in the mix, there to be consulted, there to stand guard, there to watch, to observe, to comment, to advise but not to decide and not to rule and not to serve if these are in fact places of public service first and foremost. If the public is to be served, then it should go without saying that you don't just constantly demand that you're the one who gets to do all the decision-making when it would be better for somebody else to take on that responsibility now. And so also, for those who are much younger and would not be qualified, they would not win elections to promote somebody who is also unqualified, but has an appearance of qualification because there's a very large bureaucracy propping him up. That also is selfish. You should not be propping somebody up who can't do the job. That's selfish. You're just using him as a kind of Trojan horse to accomplish your agenda. And we're all the worse for it if we say nothing about it, if we don't comment on that, if we don't object to that, if we don't look into that, if we don't demand accountability there. The church is in a unique position and always has been, whether we rise to the occasion or we don't. The church has always, throughout the last 2,000 years, been in a unique position because we have the oracles of life. We have God's word. We're supposed to be studying it, knowing it, applying it, not just endlessly debating it not just meditating on it privately. Work, a workman who need not be ashamed, does work or else he's not a workman. He's a worthless man. Sadly, our country is very much impoverished, deprived of the good, of the true, of the beautiful, because we are keeping all those things private as Christians. That's not what we're called to. Jesus called us the salt of the earth. Salt that has lost its savor is good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled under men's feet. What is he talking about there when he says that salt can lose its savor and then be trampled underfoot by men? What's he talking about? 
We need to get to the bottom of it. We need to understand that. We need to meditate on that and then act accordingly. Let God bless the outcome, but let us be found faithful and obedient. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you, by the way, also to J.P. Chavez for the excellent idea, the excellent idea of including some timestamps. You'll notice in the description for this podcast episode, if you want to go back and re-listen to a certain part where I talked about a certain subject, I'm going to put beside the links moving forward, the timestamp for when I started talking about that subject or transition to the next topic, maybe in due time, I will even break up these episodes to where you can just click advance next and it'll take you to the next audio clip. I'm not quite ready for that yet, but we'll see. We'll see if we can develop that and incorporate that in time. Baby steps. Still just making little tweaks as we go. For now, here's what you get. And you have JP Chavez to thank for the great idea. I don't know why we didn't do this sooner, but like I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.